0: From WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana, I'm Kate Young, and this is Earth Eats.
1: Bloomington is known in the science world. If you say Bloomington, people think fruit flies.
0: This week on our show, it's not exactly a Halloween story, but some might find it a little bit creepy. We're spending time in the kitchen of a science building on the campus of Indiana University, where they prepare food for a tiny organism that supports genetic research around the globe. It's fascinating stuff. At least, to me it is. I hope you'll agree. Stay with us to find out.
2: Earth Eats is produced from the campus of Indiana University in Bloomington, Indiana. We wish to acknowledge and honor the Indigenous communities native to this region and recognize that Indian University Bloomington is built on Indigenous homelands and resources. We recognize the Miami, Delaware, Potawatomi, and Shawnee people as past, present, and future caretakers of this land.
0: Everybody eats. It's not just a uniting principle for humans, but for every living thing. Even for the lowly fly. This week on Earth Eats, we're focusing on the diet of the fruit fly. You know, that annoying pest that shows up in your kitchen, usually in the summer, seems particularly interested in vinegar and bananas. Well, basically any fruit. That's the one. Most of us, when we encounter a fruit fly, are focused on keeping it out of our food. But what if it was your job to feed fruit flies? Meet Kevin Gabbard.
3: I'm a media specialist, Indiana University, biology department.
0: And how would you even go about doing that?
3: Okay, we're gonna mix all of our different ingredients in a big mixer first before we put it into the pot so that we don't have clumps and such, because that would be a disaster.
0: And furthermore, why would you?
1: We have what we call model organisms. There really aren't very many organisms that are easy to work with in a lab, and fruit flies are are one of them.
0: These are the questions we're exploring this week in a science building on the campus of Indiana University. I know it might sound strange for a food show to have an episode about fruit flies, but bear with me. They do show up in our kitchens, so that's food-related. And when I found out there was a kitchen on the campus where I work that is dedicated to making food for flies, I was intrigued. Let's talk to the chef, Kevin Gabbard. His official title is media specialist. The food he makes is also known as a medium. How long have you been doing this? Over 12 years now. Has the recipe stayed mostly the same? Oh, the recipe stayed the same. The quantity
3: keeps going up. The the amount I have to make goes up, up, up.
0: I met Kevin in the industrial kitchen located in a science building on the Indiana University campus in Bloomington. This was back in January before the coronavirus hit the US, so no one is wearing masks. It's not a huge kitchen. But I say industrial because it's got one of those big stainless steel sinks with a sprayer nozzle on the faucet, floor drains, steel tables, and metal racks, a giant floor mixer like, like you find in a commercial bakery, and a large self-contained stainless steel vat installed next to the sink with tubes and pumps and a big lid with a hinge. That's where they cook the fly food.
3: A, a water-jacketed pot. It's not steam heated it, but hot, super hot water heated. Right? It's like an insulated exactly, with water. Exactly. And it holds, well, like today we'll make 230-some uh, liters of, of food in it and there's still room for it not to overflow at the top. So it's a pretty pretty large pot, I think it's around 80, 80 gallons, I think.
0: Okay, so it's a pot, not a vat. And it has a thick wall, and that wall is filled with water, which heats up and cooks the food. I know you're dying to know, what is the food? We'll get to that. But we might wanna back up first and talk about why someone would have the job of media specialist, AKA chef to the flies. And what's at stake in getting the recipe right? Every time.
1: My name is Kevin Cook. I'm a senior research scientist at uh, Indiana University in the Department of Biology. This is the Bloomington Drosophila stock center. We distribute uh, little flies of the species Drosophila melanogaster.
0: Otherwise known as fruit flies. It's fruit flies, yes. And are these the same kinds of flies that you might find buzzing around your kitchen in the summertime?
1: Exactly the same, exactly the same kind of flies. They're found anywhere where there's fruit uh, or vegetables, you'll find fruit flies.
0: Yeah, there are two Kevins in this story. And they're pretty much the two main voices you'll hear. To keep them straight, there's Kevin Gabbard. He's the one who cooks the fly food. And there's Kevin Cook, and he's one of the co-directors of the center. So Kevin Cook is not the Kevin who cooks. Got it? Great. Back to Kevin Cook.
1: We're a repository for genetically characterized fruit flies. We distribute fruit flies around the world. We, have, we support scientists in about uh, 70 different countries and about 3,000 different labs around the world, all of whom use these little fruit flies in their research.
0: What kinds of research do these flies support? What types?
1: So as biologists, what we're interested in is you know, what cells do and why different why cells some cells are different than other cells and how cells talk to each other and how they cooperate to form tissues and organs and the sorts of things that go wrong with cells when you get a disease. So all of those things are controlled by turning genes on or turning genes off and as biologists, what you'd really like to have is an organism where you can turn on genes or turn off genes in particular cells, in particular tissues at will, so that you can see what genes do. And fruit flies are the best organism there is for doing this kind of research. We know more about the genes of fruit flies than we do any other animal and we, the experimental genetics, the things you can do in lab with fruit flies, are more sophisticated than you can, uh, than with any other animal that you can work with in a laboratory. People have, call it 22,000 genes. We know what only a small handful of human genes do in, in detail, and so right now, what the whole field of genetics is trying to do is to figure out what all of these genes do in the cell and why they're important and how they interact and so we are now in kind of the golden age of figuring out what genes do. We know they exist because we know the sequences of genomes but we don't have any idea functionally what a lot of these genes encode in the cell and, and, and and their importance. I think eventually if you really want to understand human biology, and you really want to understand how humans work at the cellular level, you're going to have to figure out what all of those genes do, right? And the fact that a small organism like a fly shares so many genes with people tells you how we may figure out how human cells work. We'll figure it out by working on these model organisms where we can do it easily. At some level, every animal cell works the same way. Mm-hmm. And so for a lot of research, it doesn't really matter whether you're studying a, cell, a process in a fly cell or in a human cell, because the process is the same right? So you want to work on, you want to use an organism that's easy to grow, cheap to grow, if you want to, and reproduces quickly, if you want to do research efficiently and economically. So what geneticists are interested in is these fundamental processes, and we can learn about them in flies, and then it's just a hop, skip, and a jump to say it's the same process or the same thing in a human cell. So there's this crosstalk where um, you learn about the processes in a fly and then you apply them in, in humans. But at the same time, if you implicate a gene in a, disease, in a human disease, Then you can find the same gene in a fly and work out the details of what it does in an organism that's easy to work on because you can't experiment with people. Right. Right?
0: So the Drosophila, or the fruit fly, is really important for genetic research, and Indiana University Bloomington is really important when it comes to supplying fruit fly strains to labs all over the world.
1: Bloomington is known in the science world, if you say Bloomington, people think fruit flies because everyone who's a geneticist knows that you go to Bloomington for, for research resources related to, to Drosophila. So we're supporting um, a, a lot of science going on out there. Um, And really important stuff, really fundamental stuff that um, trickles down eventually, eventually makes it to human biology and human medicine, and then there's this, this, this feedback. IU is really important for this corner of biology. We support a lot of people doing a lot of research around the world. We have research labs that work on fruit flies, and then we have this repository that I help run. This center's been going here at IU for about 35 years. It started in 1986. Um, There was a big repository for fruit flies at Caltech, and the guy who was running it was retiring. And so we moved the entire repository to IU, and it's been going here since. I've been here about 23 years when the flies first moved here there were about 1,600 strains and we're up to about 77,000 strains now.
0: Okay, so those are kept here? Yes.
1: Yes, so we have two different labs on opposite sides of campus. We keep two copies of every strain so that if a strain dies at one lab that we'll have a backup at the other lab and we can can keep them going that way we we duplicate everything for safety mm-hmm. as a matter of fact we just opened the second lab across campus this last year last spring
0: so i would imagine that gets a little more complicated to maintain but maybe you just duplicate everything
1: we have a van now we take food from one side of campus across to the other side of campus um and then we bring the dirty dirty dishes back to this side of campus and clean them up here so it's uh it's a lot of work
0: the fly strains are kept in small glass vials about an inch in diameter and maybe three inches tall there's food in the bottom of the vial and a stopper made of rayon that looks like a tuft of white cotton each vial holds about a hundred flies to keep them alive they need to be fed fresh food
1: so we have support facilities to keep this whole thing going we have a media kitchen for making the the food that you visited and then we have a cleanup facility where we take all those dirty dishes and, and we clean them up and it's and just keep the whole
0: thing going. There's so many moving parts to this. Right. And so so there's a dedicated staff that this is what they do. They come in and change the vials.
1: Right. So we have about sixty five people working for us uh, feeding flies. Now that they a lot of them work part time, but that still works out to about The equivalent of 25 full-time people who are putting flies on fresh food every two weeks and allowing them to grow up and keeping this going. So, you know, you've got 77,000 strains maintained in duplicate and you're feeding them every two weeks. And so it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. We We have a big staff.
0: If you're just joining us, we're talking with Kevin Cook. He's a senior scientist in biology at Indiana University, and he's a co-director of the Bloomington Drosophila Stock Center, where they maintain strains of fruit flies for genetic research. After a short break, we'll return to Kevin Gabbert in what's known as the Drosophila Media Kitchen, where they make the fly food. We'll also hear more background on the research the facility supports. Stay with us. And Kate Young, this is Earth Eats. We're back with Kevin Gabbard, in the kitchen where the fly food is made. Kevin makes a batch of food three days a week, so every other day. On the days he makes food, he gets started in the morning. So what are your ingredients? This is soy,
3: soy flour, and the other two, the other ingredients will be yeast. It's an inactive dry yeast for flavor, they like the flavor.
0: And why would flavor be important?
3: So that they'll eat it.
0: <laughs> because it's
3: the only thing in the tube, the, the actual bile that will give them nutrition and substance while, while they're laying eggs and doing all the different things they want them to do. Use a strainer to strain everything too, so make sure nothing has lumps in it. after we, Because once uh, it goes through everything and cooks, if there's lumps and it goes through the filler, it's over there that has small holes in it any kind of a lump would clog the filler and then then all of a sudden you have one vial that's not filling in each tray which would be bad so that's the reason we do that
0: so what have you got there this is
3: um, corn syrup just run-of-the-mill light corn syrup and that's another thing that they like is sweet so corn syrup adds a really nice touch to the between the yeast and the soy and then the cornmeal is where they get a lot of the n- nutrients from but it doesn't have a lot of the flavor so they put the um, other different ingredients in it but it, when it first started there was other ingredients in it also but they've kind of cut it back to where just these simple ones you know they didn't they learned that they didn't need a, at one point they used molasses well that's expensive and it's not really needed you know they're not that picky you know so
0: so some of the ingredients you're weighing and some of them you're just measuring in these kind of food grade right. buckets.
3: Right, Yeah, everything's weighed out and, and uh, measured.
0: So how much corn syrup goes in a batch?
3: Uh, in this batch, it'll be, I think it's 17 liters.
0: Now, do you have to follow all the food safety rules or does this not have to be quite as sterile? Not, not
3: no. The, answer, the short answer is no, I don't have to because it's not for human consumption. We keep everything as clean as we can. You know, and everything like that. So yes, you could eat in this kitchen, but um, we're not held to that standard. But everything here is edible. There's nothing here that you know professors in the past have ate the food, just so they could say what tell people what it tastes like. I'm not one of them. I mean, it, I'm sure it tastes fine, but I have no desire to eat it. <laughs>
0: It smells like brewer's
3: yeast. Yeah, yep. I used to tease them because they used to use malt in this, and in then in the, in the cheese, and, and people used to say, oh, we can always make beer down here. <laughs> of course, it's inactive, the yeast is and stuff, but it was just a joke.
4: Yeah.
3: This is propionic acid. It's a food grade preservative that keeps the food from molding, it gives it longer time, you know, a longer shelf life. Without this, it probably wouldn't last half the time that lasts now.
0: those look more like test tubes yeah
3: graduated cylinders and you'll see them all over the building
0: (laughs) so you marked those i
3: have to mark them before i dispose of them to let them know that they've been rinsed it's a it's a safety thing for the custodians when they pick them up because i'll put it into the glass bucket if they need to know that they've been rinsed out
0: that's the only ingredient so far that doesn't smell so good.
3: No, and this is a, this is an ingredient that, you know, if it gets on your skin, it'll burn you and you don't want to drink it, you know, because it is a preservative.
0: So you're basically mixing these dry ingredients thoroughly with water so right. that...
3: Right, and then see, so you'll see I run it through the strainer so there's no no lumps in it. Because when we pour it in the pot, we don't want any lumps in there. Some of them w- would probably cook out, but anything that doesn't cook out, then once again, it would... It would possibly clog one of the holes in the filler, and then I'm fighting that all day.
0: <laughs> Sounds like that's happened before.
3: It has, it has, even on, you know, even though you try your best, sometimes it happens.
0: So the soy looks like a, almost like a consistency of a pancake batter at this point.
3: Right. And I'm gonna weigh out the cornmeal and put them in these buckets. But probably the most, mate, other than water is the major ingredient into the mix is the cornmeal. Equals out to be just a little over 35 pounds of cornmeal a day, so that's a lot. I'm going to put another 100 liters of water in what we call the batcher, and what it does is it batches 100 liters of water into the pot, hot water. So we'll put in the second batch in now, and I turned on the pot. Now you can kind of hear it humming. It'll, it'll be humming, and that jacket's filled with all that hot water, and it's circulating through those two white pipes, insulated pipes there. It comes in and circulates through, and that's how the pot heats. This, this size, a lot of things are done through uh, steam, which would be great, except for the steam on campus is not so reliable at times, and, and if it would go down at some point, then we could make food. So they've got like what they have call a tankless hot water heater on the other side of this wall, that heats it up hot enough to boil. So, and and that's how we heat the food. This is an industrial grade cement stirrer. And what it does, it stirs the water. When they built this pot, it was meant to have this on it so it would stir it. It's better than grandma, you know, with the spoon in the kitchen because, you know, this is the only way we can really stir it other than get a boat, paddle, and (laughs) So that stirs it continuously.
0: Kevin pre-mixes most of the dry ingredients with water before pouring them into the giant pot. He takes all necessary measures to avoid clumps. He mixes some of it in the giant mixer. Scraping the sides of the mixer, just like you have to do for cookie dough. Yes,
1: this is,
3: this is auger. This is, what, this is the magic potion that makes it all gel. Kind of think of it as like jello. It is a gelatin. It's a um, seaweed-based gelatin.
0: You know, that's the one I th- would be worried about clumping because right. I but know it, that it, gels can really do that.
3: They can. And this and this will, but as long as you get it in before it starts to get to a boiling temperature, it's, it's good about mixing up. And I always check to make sure, but I've never had it to where it, it didn't mix.
0: And you're putting it in there just with the water, so you're kind of letting it get exactly. mixed up before It'd you be, add. Before it ever
3: comes to a boil, it'll be completely mixed in there. And without it... It, it, it'll still be runny and slushy and stuff, but it won't set up right, because it, it, it has to set up. But just that little bit will, and that pot will be huge, and you'll see that how important that is to have that in there.
0: He premixes five separate buckets of measured cornmeal with water.
3: For the cornmeal, for the cornmeal, eight liters in each bucket for the cornmeal, and then I'll stir it so that it's mixed up. It mixes up really well, it's cornmeal, you know, so it doesn't clump too badly. I use a spoon first to stir it, and then when I go to mix it and put it in the pot, I use my hand because you can feel with your hand if there's any clumps in it.
0: So now it smells like you're making grits. Yeah.
3: Yep. So I get the other stuff in. That's pretty much the yeast soy mixture. for the
0: corn syrup. Okay, so you've got your protein with the soy, cornmeal for a starch, some yeast for flavor, some sweetness from the corn syrup, and a thickening agent. It's sounding like a somewhat recognizable porridge, you could say. By the end of the process, I asked Kevin if he could give us a quick recap of the recipe. Like
3: today, we went through uh, 213 liters of water plus 10% because it's wintertime. And in, in the winter time, I didn't bring, didn't bring that up. In the winter time, actually, it's 227. In the winter time, you add 10% more water because it, uh, um, it evaporates so much more being dry. So, and then uh, soy is 200 or 2210. Yeast 1912 times two. So we had two buckets of that, and then, you know, 3230 for each bucket of five. 17 liters of what used to be k is it's just corn syrup now, and then, then that's my acid amount. Auger is, is different because auger uh, has different gel strengths. Every time I get an auger in, it may have a different gel strength than, than the time before. And then you, there's a formula to figure out what, it, what gel strength it is, and then I have it on the lid here. Like today, we did 1,324 grams of auger for that size of pot. But, you know, it could go up or down depending on this. is an 850 gel. It goes up 1100s. And, and 850 is usually on the lower end of anything I get. I haven't had anything under 800 for several years. I uh, guess it's not Higher that number, straightforward.
0: Well, number? he says you can find the recipe on the Stock Center's website. We'll link to it on ours. Eartheats.org It's,
3: it's always all over the place. Now, there are some certain augers like, that they use upstairs for media. While the
0: corn mush cooks, and only takes about 15 minutes, I follow the sound of clinking glass into the next room. It's a storeroom with stacks of cardboard boxes stamped with a large green fruit fly graphic carrying a product named simply Drosophila vials from a brand called Fly Stuff. There's baker's racks lined with tray upon tray of empty glass vials. Against one wall is a small desk where Ian Bullman is moving clean glass vials from one open tray into an orderly gridded tray that holds 100 glass vials. Uh,
5: you wanna know anything what I'm doing?
0: Sure, yeah, what are you doing?
5: Racking vials, of course. I do this every uh, morning here. This is how we usually get our fly food in. What? Normally, uh, we get dirty vials such as uh, these right here which cannot be used, so normally I put them here. This goes back up with the others so they can be cleaned out. Now so you you're
0: got? you're organizing them, but you're also checking to make sure there's no dirty ones. Correct.
5: Right. Empty trays go here and stack up to up here, and then they get uh, put outside on the, on the shelves.
0: Ian is prepping the vials to be filled with the food for the flies. In the kitchen, Kevin is cleaning up, though he has been cleaning up as he goes throughout the whole process. You
3: can see I don't use any soap or anything on these buckets or anything. The soap kills the flies, so if something would happen, it wouldn't get rinsed well enough, it would kill them.
0: So I guess they have to be careful with how they clean the vials, too. Yes, yes.
3: They use a industrial dishwashing detergent on those. And then there's also an anti spotting agent they also use, but both of those things are okay you know, for the flies, it won't kill them. It's actual soap soap. Uh, What it does, it it, um, keeps them from breathing. Yeah. It it basically suffocates them, the soap will. That's why when you see traps, a lot of times it's vinegar with a little bit of soap in it.
0: Yeah, I was just thinking that.
3: So that's the reason we, we stay away from it down here. I use the same detergent they use to clean the vials to clean the pot with and the hoses and stuff out with. It's safe.
0: Once the kettle of corn mush is cooked and ready for the filler, Kevin sets up the machine. So, this is called a Drosso filler?
3: Yes, and this is what they call a Max. And what the Max does, you push a button and through uh, air compression, it moves the plate for me. Used to before they started making this, you had to do it all by hand with a big handle, and you would do every one of them, every single tray by. By moving the lever back and forth. Now you just push a button, and it kind of takes a little bit off your the wear and tear on your arm all day long. Well, not all day long, but well.
0: But still, it's it's not that automated. You have to put each tray in there, right? Right.
3: Yes. Yeah. That's the only automated part about it. The rest of it's all <laughs> all human <laughs> in and out. Pump it, and then when uh, Ian comes over, then he'll he'll cover them. Then we'll put them on the drying racks so that they'll sit and dry for several hours. So. And they put the, the cheesecloth on to keep any uh, drosophila that would actually be in here, which there shouldn't be any in here, but if one would get in, or, or a common housefly or something, it keeps it from getting into the bile and laying eggs. Yeah. That's very important when they have an experiment going and all of a sudden a larvae hatches and it's a housefly or some other, you know, insect that they didn't want in there. So that's the reason we have to do that.
0: Kevin also mentioned that they have no pest control in the building. They can't risk it with the fly population. The food, which by now is a pale, golden, smooth mixture, is the consistency of a thin pancake batter. No lumps, Kevin was careful, and that batter gets pumped through clear, flexible piping into a small, square hopper over the filling mechanism. Kevin slides a tray into the bottom of the machine, lines it up with the holes under the hopper, presses a button, and the filler drops batter into the 100 vials in the tray. He releases when the right amount is reached. He slides the tray of filled vials out, and Ian places a square of cheesecloth over it and moves it to a rack. And repeat. I
5: usually stand here, cover these with the cloth, and then put them on this cart. It's all about timing and being quick, or else these overflow.
0: So you don't hold that down for a certain amount of time? It does the exact amount?
3: No, no, it's not. You have to do it all in your head. It's not always that easy, because sometimes it's, you know, it gets away from it or something, and you get a little bit more than there you want or something. You
0: guys are like a mini factory. It
5: is. Mm Mm-hmm. Enjoy the machines.
0: (laughs) It's such a small amount that goes in each vial, too.
5: Yeah,
0: yeah. I expected them to be filled up. I don't know. (laughs) No, no,
3: They have to have room to move around, and they're they're little lives in there, you know, and then
0: I mean, I could see that it could get repetitive and not not seem so exciting. But does it feel? How does it feel to know that you're supporting this research, or you know, does that play into it at all?
3: Yes, that's very rewarding, especially when you see how many there are and how much we do. It's very rewarding.
0: There are certain mistakes that you cannot make, or you endanger the stock. Right. Exactly.
3: And with the food. You know, on the food end, you know, if I forget an ingredient, uh, definitely if I would forget to put, like, a preservative in, that would really mess things up if I would pump all the food out and not have preservative in it, it's, it's not going to last half long, so it's, yeah, so something small like that, you know, would really mess things up. Important aspects to, to making food. And there's a lot more important things than the food and stuff You know, upstairs to them, of course. But, that's something I want them not to have to worry about. You know, something they don't even have to think about, it's just crazy. You
0: know. Kevin hopes that the scientists will take the fly food he makes for granted. Something they don't have to think about. While the fly food is setting up, seems like a good time for a break. I headed back to my office on the other side of campus. After a short break in this program, we'll return to the fruit fly kitchen for the final steps in the process. Hang in there. Earth Eats and we're spending this hour in an unusual type of kitchen. This one is for science. Kevin Gabbard is the chef for over 70,000 strains of Drosophila melanogaster, otherwise known as the common fruit fly. So far we've been through the measuring, mixing, cooking and dispensing of the food. It's a sort of corn-based thin porridge with a gelling agent that allows it to set up once it's dispensed into the vials where the flies are kept. Each vial holds about 100 flies, and they need to be moved to fresh food every two weeks. So every other day, Kevin Gabbard and his assistant, Ian Bowman fill 300 trays, about 30,000 vials, to keep the stock center well stocked. I've returned to the kitchen a few hours after the food was dispensed. Now it's time to flip the trays and take them to the upper floors. They take a tray of filled vials, remove the cheesecloth, and cover the vials with the press and seal, just the regular household variety.
3: Push down so that it adheres to the glass and then we put another tray over top of it and we flip it over so that the food is at the top and, and gravity holds the vials to the bottom of the tray against the press and seal to seal it off.
0: And the food has set up, so yes. it's solid.
3: Right. And once again, if we hadn't used like an auger or something, what would happen? is food would just start running down, or either just, or just boom, fall right to the bottom <laughs> once we flip them.
0: Now, any time there's cooking, there's going to be dirty dishes. In this case, there's the cleanup from making the food. Kevin keeps up with that as he goes along, always and while the food is cooking or while the food is setting up in the vials he gets the whole kitchen clean and set up for the next time they cook but there's another set of dishes that need to be washed and we'll get to that right after the vials of fresh food are delivered to their destinations kevin let me follow him on the delivery the vials go upstairs some of them go into labs where scientists are doing research The lab I peeked into has a long counter with three scientists peering into microscopes. They're surrounded by small collections of vials filled with flies, hungry for fresh food, no doubt. The biologists will move the flies they're working with into the vials with the new food. I'm doing a radio story. I see. (laughs) Just following him up here for delivery.
5: Okay. (laughs) sure.
0: Just the, their final different. destination.
5: <laughs>
0: <laughs> Happy customers. <laughs> Thank you. Sorry to intrude. <laughs> oh, no but most of the vials go to the walk-in cooler, where they'll be retrieved as needed by the flippers, also known as stock keepers. These are the people whose sole job is to feed the Drosophila, the fruit fly strains that make up the vast collection at the Stock Center.
3: You know, they can only have so many in here. Well, since they split it between that and mesh, it's not as bad, but uh-huh. used to when they were all here, you know, then they split half of them over there. So it's not so bad, but when they were all here, you could only get so many people to come in in the daytime. There was not room to sit down and flip. So some people, and then some people had kids or other jobs and they would come in the evenings and flip. I mean, there was people here probably around the clock at one point in time. And Just I,
0: to keep up? Yeah. Hi. Hello.
3: This is Kate. She's with WFIU. She's doing a story about the fly food.
0: Hi, Kate. Hi. I love your hair. Thank you. It's a, it's a food show, but I thought it was interesting that you guys are feeding the flies all day.
4: <laughs> yeah, we have to clarify when okay, we say, do you I'll want some that. food, what we're getting.
0: It's <laughs> okay. fly food. So what what is the process mm-hmm. of flipping them? Yeah.
4: Oh, you just have to take the oldest vial and flip the flies onto new food.
0: Okay. And then so you take t- out the rayon.
4: Yeah, I take out the rayon, flip the vial onto the new vial, and then replug it, and you get rid of the oldest vial, and then you just turn around. But the and then they have special food for if they're sick. There's German food with more nutrition and I guess more yeast in it. And then we is put that it pumpkin. Uh, no, not that's pumpkin. Small, Some a Mr. Kaufman has the pumpkin yeah. food. Um, then this one has like, antibiotics put in it, so if there's bacteria, you can use that. So I'm feeding all the sick flies, so I have to have that in here.
0: How <laughs> how, how many of these do, do you think you do in a day?
4: Well, Andrea's doing 11 trays today. I don't do as many because I'm doing the sicker flies. They take longer, so there are about 60 stocks in each tray so she's going to flip over 600 stocks today.
0: Do you ever have any flies that don't want to come out or do they all? Yes sometimes they're stuck in the food or
4: on the side of the vial um, and you can let them crawl up because they like to go toward the light so if you hold it under the light they'll crawl up and then you'll have ones that come out too fast and they escape so we have fly traps for all that. Okay. We're supposed to try and keep them from getting out of the building which is a little hard when you have little winged things.
0: What is your name? Carol Sylvester Thank you so much, Carol. I really appreciate it. It was great to to meet you and to see what you're doing. Nice to meet you, too. So Kevin Gabbard makes the standard fly food formula, but there are special foods made in smaller batches for particular types of research. I had heard about the food made with pumpkin. In fact, it was what got me interested in this story in the first place. The Drosophila stocks with the expansive list of individual strains are used in research here on campus. They're also available for the larger scientific community and they're shipped all over the world. They use plastic vials for shipping. Kevin Gabbard explains that this is to ensure that they don't break in transit. But the fly strains in the Bloomington Drosophila Stock Center are maintained in glass vials. They're reusable, eco-friendly, and more economical than plastic. But that means dishwashing. A lot of dishwashing. Ian took me to the dishwashing room for a tour.
5: First of all, this is where other trays go that Kevin usually brings up. Here is where some of the other fly food is with with flies in them. This cart is for when we need to take them inside. Now this is where we, now we go inside. Okay, here we go. Okay guys. All right, Hello. Uh, here he is. Hi. Uh, may I present, uh, Bennett? Best, Hi, Bennett. best guy I know here. Nice to meet you. i trying to be. This oh, fine lady okay. is, our, is our interviewer for today. Yes. How you
0: doing?
4: <laughs>
5: nice to meet you. Nice to meet you.
0: He showed me the autoclave room.
5: Which goes up to extreme heat levels for a certain amount of time. To sterilize? Yes. Okay. Then we take him out to pick out the cotton over here. Then we spray him out over here to get the junk out. Then adding soap in and fill push. up to soak overnight. Uh, then we brush them out. Uh, after that's done, we put them in the washers. They go for a certain amount of time. After that's done, we put them in the dryers to let them dry off for a certain amount of time. Then, when that's done, we rack them. And then it goes back down, which is a simple cycle. And
0: Sim- then you rack them into those trays.
5: Of course so i guess that is
0: so there's three dryers
5: yes all right
0: yeah i'm doing a radio story mostly
5: about the food oh really
0: yeah cool yeah i just think it's interesting that there's a whole operation to feed the
4: flies. Oh man! <laughs> uh, especially to think that it, like
1: employs like several people, like full time benefits, everything, all for the sake of research for flies, yeah. for Drosophila. So it's and it's crazy to think it's like they're doing research, and while we're like the kind of lesser knowns that help, you know, Ian's assistant, TJ and Eric, everything just goes to help research. It's it is kind of remarkable to
5: think about. Yeah. Yeah. It's right. a responsibility for
0: us. Yeah. Well, thank you. I appreciate the tour and uh, yeah. yeah. Cool. It have... is truly amazing to have this crew working to maintain this valuable resource for the scientific community. Let's return to my conversation with Kevin Cook, co-director of the Bloomington Drosophila Stock Center, who we spoke with earlier. After hearing about the special treatment the sick flies were getting from Carol Sylvester, I had a question for Dr. Cook. How would you be able to tell if one was not doing well?
1: Well, you're you're really looking at an ecosystem, right? You have a population of of flies in a vial and the, the little larvae are eating the food. And you're judging the health of the culture by how many flies are in the culture, how many eggs they're laying, how many larvae are in the food. Um, and just the, generally how robustly the, the population's growing. Okay,
0: that makes sense to me. I, I'm a beekeeper, and that's definitely the way. You're not looking at an individual bee to see how right. they're doing. You're looking at what's happening, how many eggs are getting laid, how quickly, like, yeah. Kevin Cook thought it might be helpful to go over the life cycle of a fly.
1: So the way the cultures work is that females will lay eggs on the surface of the food, And in about 24 hours, um, the egg will develop from a single cell to a a little larva that has all of its organ systems, its brain, everything necessary for crawling around and eating. It'll hatch from that egg and will start eating the food and uh, will grow so that it goes from about the smallest thing you can see with your naked eye to a a larva that's about the size of a small grain of rice over about four days. So an incredible increase in, in volume and size. And after the end of, after about five days, the larva will crawl up on the side of that glass vial and its outside, its skin will harden to make the outside of the pupil case, the chrysalis, if you will. And that fly will metamorphose inside that uh, pupil case over the next five days. So it will turn from something that looks like a little, a little worm, a little maggot, to uh, what you think of as a fly over the course of five days. Then it'll, it'll close, It will come out of that pupil case, crawl out, Expand its wings, and it's an adult. And uh, within about eight to ten hours after it crawls out of the pupal case, it's re- there. It's ready to mate and start the whole process over again. This is a few
0: I, hours, you said.
1: Yeah, about eight, adolescence lasts about eight hours in a fruit fly, and so. This is why they're really good to use in lab because these guys are built for speed. They really develop fast. If you think about how long it takes most animals to, to grow, you know, 10 days is really fast. And you're talking about uh, not only development, but you're talking about, more, you know, dev- development plus metamorphosis over, over that 10-day span.
0: So I can see why that would be so useful to do kind of multi-generational, you can do multi-generational in a month.
1: Right, right, we can, get, we can get a generation every two weeks if you really push it.
0: I asked him for an example of well-known research that fruit fly experimentation has supported.
1: Well, going back historically, all of the uh, details about how inheritance works were worked out in fruit flies. So if you understand that genes are on chromosomes, that was figured out in fruit flies. If you understand that things like x-rays cause mutations and that mutations cause abnormal traits, all of that was figured out in fruit flies in the, in the first place. Um, that's historically, you know, in more recent times, the understanding about how how genes contribute to development and all of those biochemical and signaling pathways inside the cell that are necessary for, for development from an egg to, to an adult, a lot of those details were worked out in fruit flies. The, there was a Nobel Prize recently for figuring out circadian rhythms, you know, when you wake up, when you go to sleep, all of that was worked out in fruit flies. As the recent Nobel Prize was for how immunity works on a, at the a level of individual cells. And a lot of that information was, was worked out in fruit flies. And so you've got a huge, long history of really important ex- uh, discoveries having been made in fruit flies. And, you know, the, the principles were worked out first in this humble little organism and then taken and uh, added to and explored in, in mammals and eventually in, in people. So we're, fruit flies are where it starts, and, and it, it uh, gets built on from that point on.
0: Nobel Prizes, our understanding of human development, big stuff from a little fly.
1: At any one time. We're growing about 308,000 vials of flies between our two facilities, and if you figure there's about 100 flies per vial, we have about uh, 31 million flies on the Bloomington campus at any one time.
0: They're not all in this building, but half of them. Yeah. <laughs> in this building. <laughs> Well, as we were sitting here talking, I did notice there was one buzzing around.
1: <laughs> there aren't very many escapees, considering how many flies we have have around. Stockkeepers do a really good job of, of maintaining the cultures in a pure state and not letting those escapees get into other vials. And astoundingly low, con, considering how many strains we have growing.
0: So the Bloomington Drosophila Center had to make many changes due to COVID-19 restrictions. The staff are classified as essential personnel. Kevin Gabbard and the stock keepers and dishwashers have continued to maintain the flies at the stock center. They did have to stop shipping operations for a while, but they're back up and running with significant delays. Thanks for sticking with me through this story of fruit flies, and the people who feed them. If you have thoughts to share, drop us a line, eartheats at gmail.com, or send us a direct message on social media. You can find us at Eartheats. And I want to strongly encourage you to go to our website this week and look at the photos from the Drosophila Center. They really complete the story. eartheats.org.
2: That's it for our show
0: this week. Take care.
2: The Earth Eats team includes Ayoban Binder, Mark Chilla, Abraham Hill, Josephine McRobbie, the IU Food Institute, Harvest Public Media, and me, Renee Reed.
0: Special thanks this week to Kevin Gabbard, Kevin Cook, Ian Volman, Carol Sylvester,
2: and everyone at the Bloomington Drosophila
0: Stock Center.
2: Our theme music is composed by Aaron Toby and performed by Aaron and Matt Toby. Additional music on the show comes to us from the artists at Universal Productions Music. Earthies is produced and edited by Kate Young, and our executive producer is John Bailey.